after unbelieving critics reject the creator of Genesis chapter one and the creation account of Genesis chapter one, those unbelieving critics then proceed to reject the very same in Genesis chapter two, claiming that Genesis two was added at a later date by some editor. And the critics dismiss Genesis two, claiming that it's contradictory to Genesis one. However, there is a simple literary explanation for the differences between Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and and it it is this. Genesis 1, as we've read, as we've studied over the last week or two, Genesis 1 is a chronological account of creation marked by successive days of creation. The evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. The evening and the morning were the third day, etc., etc., until chronologically on the seventh day God rested. Genesis 2 now is a logical account of creation that is presented in a different arrangement for some of the the, the different details here now help us with an understanding of why God created what he created. And this morning we'll pick up in Genesis chapter 2 verse number 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So in this case the history is not given to us chronologically. That was chapter 1. It's given to us logically now in chapter 2. And in this case this history is more of a record, more than a record of the events that we read in chapter 1. This is in fact as history done properly is. It's a recounting of history in a way that helps helps us to understand and appreciate, interpret the meaning and the impact of the events that are recorded. And so the biblical history now in Genesis 2 instructs us regarding man's identity and responsibility. Number one in your notes, if you're following the outline I've created, God, number one, God created man to have relationship with him. Genesis 2 will teach us that God created man to have relationship with him. And you say, well, Pastor Matt, we understand this as God has revealed in his word. He's assured us of this truth. But how might we discern this from Genesis chapter 2? I think there are a few indicators of this here from the very beginning. First, God's name. God's name. In Genesis 1... Moses cited God's name Elohim 32 times in 31 verses. Elohim is the masculine plural form of the Hebrew El, meaning God. And the name of God, Elohim, provides for the triunity of God as the creator from the beginning. However, now in Genesis 2 verse 4, Moses begins to use a different name for God, a compound name for God. It's the name Yahweh Elohim. In your English Bible, if you look at chapter two, verse four, it reads, Lord God. And anytime you see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your English Bibles, you know that it is the name Yahweh. When you see God, capital G, lowercase O-D, it is the name Elohim. So after 32 uses of Elohim in Genesis one, Moses is now using a compound name, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, 20 times in Genesis two and three. You can find it there in verse number four. You see it, Lord God, verse number four. Look at verse number five. You find it there also, Lord God. Look at verse seven, Yahweh Elohim. Verse eight, Yahweh Elohim. Verse number nine, Lord God. You get the picture. 
Yahweh was the name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter three, and it means the self-existing one. It was the covenant name that God gave to Israel to assure them of his relationship with them. It was Yahweh who led Israel out of Egypt. It was Yahweh who led Israel through the wilderness. It was Yahweh that led Israel into the promised land. In fact, Moses told the people in Deuteronomy chapter 31, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid for Yahweh, your Elohim. For the Lord, your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. So when Moses is penning penning the, the book of Genesis here under inspiration of the Spirit of God, Moses wanted us to know that the Elohim of chapter one is our Yahweh in chapter two. He's our Yahweh Elohim. And God created man to have relationship with him. But beyond simply assuring us with God's name, Moses tells us about, secondly, God's life breath. His life breath. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, we know that God spoke everything to, into existence by his word. On each day of creation, God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. But in Genesis 2, Verse number seven now, we are told that God formed man out of the dust of the ground. You see it there, verse number seven. God didn't fashion us from precious metals or or stones, but from the, the most lowly of materials, the dust of the ground. You see, we are all dirt bags, you see. We're, we're, we're dirt bags. And even the Apostle Paul recognized that we are simply earthen vessels. We are jars of clay, 2 Corinthians 4, verse seven. It's humbling, However, look at verse seven, Genesis two verse seven tells us more. God breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living being or the King James Version, a living soul. And folks, that is something different than the rest of creation. That is something different from the animal kingdom and God gave man an immaterial and eternal life like his own. Last week we discussed the the image of God and man, but it really begs us to question why. Why did God create man in his image after his likeness? Why did God breathe into man that very, that soul, that, that life breath? It's because God wanted to have relationship with his creation, with with man. But there's more. Let us see God's provision. God's provision. Now remember, I told you that Genesis 1 is a chronological record of creation. Genesis 2 is a logical record of creation. And so allow me to show you some of the the logical presentation that Moses makes here in chapter 2. Consider the logic of God's creation to provide for man. In verse number five, if you look there, there is a need in verse number five. The need in verse number five was for water to sustain the plant life and the vegetation that God had created on the third day. Without rain, creation would become a a desert. In verse number six, God met that need. How did he do that? Look at verse six. By providing a mist to water the earth. Furthermore, if you look ahead to verses 15 and 16, God provided a garden where good things would grow, food would grow for for man to eat and sustain him. So this logical presentation. Here's another point of logic. If you look at verse 18, 
Verse 18, there's a need. There's a need in God's creation. The need is for, in verse number 18, was for Adam, who is alone. He had no counterpart or companion. So God purposed to provide a helper for Adam. And in a few moments, I want to return again to to the creation of woman and and the matter of marriage as described at the end of chapter two. But, But here's the point. The creator provided for man, a, a woman. So God's provision for man. There's, there's one more idea I'd like to offer regarding God's intent for a relationship with man, and that would be letter D, God's presence. Now, in the perfection of God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2, there was sweet communion and fellowship between God and man. We don't know exactly what that looked like. Did Adam and Eve walk in the garden with God in the cool of each day? Chapter 3, verse 8 suggests that. I don't know exactly what that fellowship or that communion looked like. But if, if you cheat ahead to chapter 3, verse 8, we, we gain some insight regarding God's presence among Adam and Eve in the garden. After their disobedience, after their sin, we're going to study this next week in, early in the verses of chapter 8, there, there was something that happened and Adam and Eve demonstrated fear and shame and guilt by covering themselves and hiding themselves from God's presence in chapter 3 verse number 8. After Adam and Eve's sin, their sin separated between them and their God. Isaiah 59 verse number 2 tells us because of sin, the, the relationship between God and man was broken but yet God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, so that relationship could be restored and reconciled. But God's presence among his creation there with man indicates to us that he intended to have relationship with man. And so folks, what what of our identity as human beings, as man or as woman, Our identity is not gender or ethnicity or vocation or social class. It is that we are created in the image of God by the very breath of God to have relationship with God for his glory. And he accomplishes that by reconciling us to him through Jesus Christ. That's who I am. And if you are confused this morning about who you are, if you are having an identity crisis, if you're having a a pity party perhaps about who you are, you're confused about who you are, know that God created you in his image and his likeness to have relationship with you. And the crisis of personal identity that exists today is a consequence of man rejecting Genesis chapters one and two. Now, follow this with me now logically. In Genesis chapters one and two, God created man. God then created a garden for man, chapter two, verse number eight, and and then God created a, a wife for man, in verse 22. Folks, this is paradise. Man living in a garden with his wife. After all, paradise is the place where you enjoy the luxuries of, and the leisures of the best that there is in life. However, if you look to chapter two, verse 15, the Bible tells us that God put Adam in the garden to work, to tend and keep the garden. If you look ahead to verses 19 and 20, God charged Adam with the the work, the task of naming the animals. And so I would offer you number two, God called man to work for him. 
God created man to have a relationship with him and God called man to work for him. And, but at this point, work is a good thing. In fact, from the beginning, God worked. Genesis 2.2, verse two there, it says that God ended his work which he had done. He rested from all his work which he had done. So work is not a consequence of the fall. Work predated the fall. And work is a good thing, not a bad thing. It was because of the curse, because of the sin of man and the curse, Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19, that man's work became toilsome. But but it's clear that God called man to work for him. Genesis 2, 15, Genesis 2, 19 and 20. Work is our responsibility. Ephesians 6 teaches us that we ought to work not as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And folks, there is an ethic. There is a a set of moral principles. We call it the Judeo-Christian ethic. The the Judeo-Christian work ethic that is sourced in the Bible and that teaches us our responsibility for work. In fact, the Apostle Paul has said in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse number 10, if anyone will not work, He should not eat. But there's a crisis among many today who indulge themselves in the recreations and the entertainments of life to the neglect of work. There are some who are lazy and who do not work. There are some who complain about a lack of purpose in life and and refuse to work. And in their crisis, they say, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. Okay, answer is go work. That's what God would have you to do. That's your responsibility. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10, Solomon said, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your mights. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. And so our responsibility is to work. Now, obviously, there are circumstances in which people can't work. Physical limitations and and age and such, and we respect that. But God has given us a responsibility to, to work. But there's another aspect of responsibility. God has commanded man to obey to obey. Now follow the logic in this. We're, we're thinking logically as Moses has presented the creation account in Genesis 2. If God created us, if he's the potter, we're the clay, then our identity is grounded in who he made us to be. That's our identity. Follow the logic in this. If God has created us, our responsibility, he's the potter, we're the clay, our responsibility is then grounded in what he's told us to do. This is so incredibly simple, but it's so profound at the very same time. As God's creation, that's our identity. We are compelled to obey. That is our responsibility. And I think there's a a couple of things here. First, look back to chapter 1, verse 26. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We rule over creation. This was the command that we ought to obey. Look at verse 28. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish, over the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the the earth. We are to be fruitful and multiply. 
This is sometimes referred to as the dominion mandates. And in the dominion mandate, God has called us and commanded us to work in this way, in obedience to him, being fruitful, multiplying, and subduing the earth. But, but there's more now in chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it, okay? And the Lord God, verse 16, Yahweh Elohim commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. This is my provision for you. But, verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat it you shall surely die. The command to obey, and of course we know the rest of the story. Adam and Eve did not obey. They disobeyed. We'll, of course, study that in greater detail next week. But, folks, we might be quick to to judge Adam and Eve for their disobedience. But remember that we are guilty of the same. And when we reject the Creator and we reject His creation of us in His image, after His likeness, breathing into us the, the, the very soul that we have, then we are disinclined to work for him and to obey him. But God has created us for for relationship. He's called us to work, to obey. This is our identity, our responsibility. But there's one more aspect I'd like to show you. One more aspect, and and this is number four. God complimented man to reflect relationship with him. Now, the word complimented, it's in your notes, it's on the screen, it is not complimented. The spelling is critical. Complimented is a word that means to, to complete, to bring to completion. Complimented means to offer a, a word of praise or admiration. God brought man to completion. He complimented him by giving him a wife to reflect the relationship that he purposes to have with us. Now, don't give up on me yet. Let me explain this to, to you, and, and I think you'll, you'll find this very, very meaningful. For the first time in the Bible, we are told that something was not good in verse 18. Numerous times in Genesis 1, we are told that, that things were good, in fact, very good. God created each day, said it was good, it was good, it was good. The creation of man, it was very good. But now in chapter 2, verse 18, we are told there is something that is not good. What is not good? That man was alone, verse number 18. And the Lord God said, Yahweh Elohim said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So God created woman and gave woman to man, ordaining and establishing the institution of marriage. Let me read verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, Yahweh Elohim had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. See, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. You say, well, Pastor Matt, I, I, I don't understand how this, this reflects relationship between God and man. I want you to 
I want you to turn with me. Well, don't do that just yet. Let me, let me give you some of these subpoints here and let me describe marriage in, in this, these ways. First, marriage is a counterpart relationship. A counterpart relationship or, or you might fill in a companionship relationship. It was a counterpart or companionship because of aloneness. The issue was not necessarily loneliness It was aloneness. There's a difference. If you are lonely, go get a dog, right? They say a dog is man's best friend. I'm not convinced of that, but that's what they say. If you're lonely, get a dog. Get two. Get a cat. Whatever you need. Adam had the whole animal kingdom to keep him company, or God could have created other guy friends for Adam. And if God had created guy friends, they could hang out together. They could could go fishing and hunting and, and into the ball game. But, but the, the issue was a counterpart relationship and companionship that Adam did not have like other creation, verse number 18. So God created woman and instituted marriage as a counterpart companionship relationship. Secondly, he, he created a marriage as a, a constructed relationship in verse 18. God says that he purposed to make for Adam a helper suitable for him. Verse 18, now, this is not a disparagement of women at all. If anything, it tells us that man couldn't make it on his own. And married men, you know that we would be a wreck without our wives, right? And so God constructed a relationship. First Corinthians 11, Paul wrote that man was not created for the woman, but woman for the man because men are needy, you see. And so although there's equality, there's ontological equality between men and women, both are created in God's image. After his likeness, God breathed life, soul into man and women. There is not economic equality. That is, we were created with different roles and responsibilities. And marriage is a constructed relationship in which the woman is a help meet for the man. And wives, on behalf of men everywhere, husbands everywhere, thank you for who you are because we need you to help us. Marriage is, is number three, letter C, it's, it's a cleaving relationship. And this is a fun one to, to think about. Adam and Eve had no parents, right? But yet the instruction was given that Adam must leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife in verse 24, you see it there. And I'm sure that was a head scratcher at the time. But it points to Identity and responsibility. When a couple marries, they establish a new home that is independent of their mother and father's home. Since we're talking about marriage, I, I need to say this. Marriage is a committed relationship. And I've given you the reference of, of Matthew 19, verse number eight, where Jesus says, from the beginning, and he's referencing this account. Matthew 19, verse eight, from the beginning, marriage is for life. It's permanent, it's committed. And the marriage vows say to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. And Matthew 18, Jesus affirmed God's design here in Genesis two for the permanence of marriage. How about this? Marriage is a corporal, corporal relationship. And, and corporal is, is that which pertains to the flesh. We, we understand corporal punishment as being, is, is that physical punishment. Marriage is a physical relationship. It provides for physical reproduction. And, and there, in, back in Genesis 1, verse 28, God's mandate was for Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. 
But then here, this is, this is where I'm going. Marriage is a Christian relationship. And, and here is now, as we, we conclude, we need to connect the dots of our biblical theology. And this is now when I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter five. Go with me to Ephesians chapter number five because in Ephesians chapter five, the apostle Paul quotes Genesis two, verse 24. The very scripture that we've been studying this morning. And you know this passage well, but it bears the reading. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, let me read quickly. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church." For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Verse 31. This is our connection now back to Genesis 22. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This is Genesis 2 verse 24. And now verse 32. This is a great mystery. Something that was not previously revealed, not previously understood, but now is revealed and understood. This is a great mystery, but I I speak concerning Christ and the church. Folks, what is this teaching us? It's teaching us that marriage, back in Genesis 2, verse 24, was to reflect God's relationship with us through Jesus Christ. You see, marriage all the way back at the beginning was a gift from God, not just for pleasure, not just for procreation, but ultimately to reflect the relationship that God has with us through Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, not everyone gets married. Married, That's fine. In fact, God has gifted some with singleness, 1 Corinthians 7. Obviously, not everyone who gets married is a Christian. We understand that. But when I say marriage is a Christian relationship, what what are we saying? We are saying that God has complemented man in Genesis 2 with woman in marriage to reflect relationship that he wants to have with his creation, man and woman. So we've come full circle. When you read Genesis one and two, know that from the beginning, God created us with identity and with responsibility. He created us with purpose. And our identity as human beings, men men and women, and our responsibility as created in his image, men and women, are grounded in these truths. Folks, do not fall for the world's confusion regarding identity and responsibility. God created you in a special way. He's called you to work and he's commanded you to obey. And when you see a a married couple, know that that unique relationship is the mystery from Genesis 2, verse 24, that God wants to have with you through Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you have never bent the knee in submission and obedience, believing 
him, his death and resurrection, then I want you to know the gospel and I want you to have that all-important eternal relationship so that you might know who you are and what you are to do. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for these truths. Thank you for the chronological record of of creation in Genesis 1 and the logical record of creation in in Genesis 2. It it instructs us and, and teaches us so much about your creation. God, you have, you have made us in your likeness. And God, you have given us identity and responsibility. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand these things. For I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.